place in the background. It's like when I turn on the YouTube. Last night I put on the YouTube on just a fireplace. And I was like, one day I will live in my cabin. One day I will have wood that burns. I can have hot s'mores whenever I want. Keep my house appropriately with no broken furnaces. One day I will have windows with insulation. One day I will live in a house that doesn't lead me to think, oh God, what's going to leak now that it rains? Oh, are we going to lose another chair? You know what you should do? I still am in favor that you should have like a single potted cactus that sits on the chair. <laughs> <clears throat> Terribly glad that you find this amusing. It's not, it's horrible. It's so horrible. Hey, if it makes you feel better, my house is also leaking. <laughs> Your house is also what? leaking and I have a broken furnace. Pillar candles, fun. Nick, that's what I forgot this week. I need pillar candles. Ultimately, I need to tell my landlord my heater needs fixed, but that requires a phone call. So excited to talk to her today. I was bouncing on cloud nine today. I updated all the artwork. Yes. Fuck so yeah. all the episodes now have the updated tiles. I'm, I'm going to make a simple tile, right? So when you look up a podcast, if it has the image in the words, you can't read it. I'm just going to make a tile that's can a you solid make, color background. Can you make one that just says uh, Safe of Candles podcast with no name for the channel itself? Isn't it the show with no name? The show with no name podcast, yeah. I don't think you need to put podcast in the title. I know. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm in such a good mood. Okay, Jules. How's everything going with you since your since our last recording? Um, things are amazing, frankly. Uh, free space is legal, or it will be by the time this airs, and that's what's key. Uh, we filed our paperwork. We have a tax number. Uh, we are a legal operating entity now within the United States. Uh, very excited about that. Very Congrat excited about that. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. And today we will be joined by Izzy Lawrence. I just realized. How are you, safe? I just realized I don't have a written bio of her. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Okay. Uh, no, it's like Pharaoh. Every time I spell Pharaoh, I, <laughs> I every time I spell Pharaoh, I make the mistake of spelling it O A instead of A O, like Pharaoh. And yeah. the same thing, I suffer with the Izzy. I, I always get the S and the Z, the Z mixed up. I always think it's Z. It's a made up name, but can't get offended. <laughs> I love it. I love your your is that your living room is beautiful. Oh, thank you very much. It is it is nonsense, but yes, no. This is this is me. This is where I am. 
it's a bit messy. I have a clump of clothes there, but I'm clothed, so it's fine. I'm in a, I'm in cool. a functional studio space that's being shared right now, so believe me, I understand. <laughs> And okay. I oh, myself sorry. reside, and I myself reside in my father's mausoleum of a house, somewhere on the coast of Alexandria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. So you're actually over in Egypt. <laughs> you sound surprised. No, it's it's it's. You know, when you think, you know, you think things about people, and you just go, "Is that too?" Is that is that just me doing a stereotype in my head? Because I knew you're Egyptian, type, and then I'm just like, oh no, no, it is near Alexandria. That that does make sense because Alexandria for me only exists in sort of about what minus forty five BC, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my imagination. You forget it's I'll, still a place. I'll, I'll I'll tell all my Alexandrian friends we don't exist. Would you like me? To... <laughs> I'm excited you're here. I'm excited oh. you're here because I I get to learn new things about new comedians every day, right? And that's the Ooh. most exciting thing about this podcast for me. But I watched your TED Talk and when I re-watched it recently, I realized I had watched it when I was going to school. So I went to school for anthropology and studied oh. exactly what was in your TED Talk. And it was one of the first TED Talks that I had found when I was reading my research and I'd listen to them in the background as I was doing it. <laughs> Boom, there you go. Is he talking BS? Well, not BS totally, obviously. However, I am, uh, yeah, I can't remember. It's Clive somebody. It's the guy that Rumble and Dunbar um, worked uh, with was a guy that um, I actually interviewed for the British Museum member cast, which is how I got into Robin Dunbar. I had a bit of Dunbar's number because I also did statistics and stuff at uni. And then, yeah, and from that, I sort of got into it and then actually thought, hang on, if they're right about this, the only reason we're doing all of this is just to chat. Yeah. And therefore, <laughs> we're currently doing what humans are invented for. Anyway, so that's nice. So, yay. And where are you based? I'm in the States. So I'm on the uh, East which, Coast which one? in the US. I'm in Pennsylvania, specifically. Pennsylvania. There we go. Yeah. Where all the pens come from now. I don't know. Um, I don't know much about Pennsylvania. Do I? A bunch of, some bunch of backwards. It's just very, oh. very, very backwards and oh, strange. Right. <laughs> that's okay. It's not all of you. It's just most of you. I think, there's of a, I think the Amish reside in Pennsylvania. Yeah. They do. Middle of the state. Not where I live. We have a bunch of um, backwater hillbillies where I live. They're like assless chaps and a cowboy hat away from shooting their guns in the air in the street here well that's so. really quite cool so so i mean at least you can easily get laid that's the thing <laughs> you would think but oh. i was i was assuming it would be a bit like here. <laughs> well i'm not saying you can get laid well <laughs> i'm saying you can get laid <laughs> There's there's a thing about sort of slightly rural places in the UK. Uh, if you go up to Scotland and there's places like Avermore, and whenever a woman walks in a room, and the men just come and they they're here and they're not <laughs> aggressive, but they're just like fresh meat, <laughs> you know, because every Sounds woman like immediately when they're twelve years old, I have a boyfriend because they have to be like that because every man is just like. 
oh, you're single now. Vroom. You know, yeah. you've got no escape. So any anytime you walk through those towns, you just have men here. Just go, I don't care what you look like. I don't care who I just tell me about you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to have this, I used to have this joke idea that every time a single European non-Arab woman arrives in Cairo airport, that there's some Egyptian form of Twitter that tweets to all the young single men, a fresh one has just arrived. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, no. We're not all, right. no, 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 not all men. No, no, no. Not all men. Not not all men. Yes, I have, I have Again, Moroccan brothers. All men, yeah. I have Moroccan <laughs> brothers. I know. I know. I have... <clears throat> I have a, a wicked Uncle Nordine and yes, and Uncle Ali as well. So I am aware. <laughs> well, I live in the Middle East, so I, 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 I have to watch what I say, whether I say all or not all, but- uh, Exactly. But for the sake of uh, video- well, That's what we have the editing phase for. <laughs> um, well, from my brother Ilias, who's a sweetheart, not Anwar, but Ilias is a sweetheart. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember speaking with you once because you were at a. You posted on your Instagram a picture to do with Ramadan and an iftar, mm. and I was like, "What? You're Muslim? <laughs> well, no, because like no. the name Izzy. I thought, yeah, exactly. You know, okay, Maybe. that makes sense. You know, Izzedine or something. No. no, short for Isabel. I'm as white as a toilet, me. But my dad, um, his my stepmom. My dad, parents got divorced. Dad got, you know, my dad got me a new stepmom. She's lovely. She already had three kids. Um, she's Muslim. Her family are Muslim. She's one of seven. So I've got a massive side of that family. Um, but I'm not blood relation. I'm just there just going, well, I won't talk about eating bacon. It's fine. So, you know. <laughs> well, Izzy, if it but, makes um, you feel any better, bacon is my Achilles heel. And it's good. I, even though I've just recently gone pescatarian, I would. Okay, yeah. Fish don't really do good bacon. No, they don't. There's no fish version of bacon or jerky, really. No, just... there isn't. Unless you go to Japan. Yeah, maybe. Well, they you do. Can, they do like salt like fish in Jamaica. Hmm. And yeah. they they do uh, pickled fish here in Egypt that sometimes gets mentioned in the Guardian for being possibly toxic possibly source of <laughs> e coli and god knows what else uh, but egyptians swear by it every easter um have you sorry have you gigged in scandalia so have you have you done like holland and all of no, that I, sort of I, place I, because I, there I, they they do post gig you go out and you find a van where they serve you herring which is basically a fish with the tail still on but everything else smothered in either salt or mayonnaise or whatever and then you just eat it like that and yeah it's, they're weird they're basically seals over there they're very odd but uh, yes i don't know if i could do that what eat a thing oh you can you can if you're drunk enough you can do anything <laughs> i guess i guess i'd have to do research my drinking days again <laughs> yes and on that note, so, we can see that here that. in the show with no name, we literally have no rules whatsoever. Sometimes the show can start in the middle of banter and chatter. And sometimes we talk about things like pickled fish. 
Uh, welcome to Safe Rebel Candles, the show with no name, and my co-host uh, Julia Felix from Free Space International. Uh, Free, would you like to tell us or tell our guest what Free Space does? Yeah, so Free Space is a grassroots organization that I started last year in response to the absolutely shit handling of the arts budget. Um, I'm still bitter. <laughs> uh, I created it be because I wanted to offer highly customized supportive services to artists uh, and creatives around the world. So our goal is to create a co-op, a network of artists who are all working together to further the industry. Oh, that's good. Like setting each other up the contacts and that sort of thing. Yeah, no? yeah. Um, and like I do direct project management, so we're able to like oh. source information. We handle a lot of like admin and uh, scheduling communications, finance and ends of things. Oh, cool. That sounds that's like beyond my pay grade as an artist. I just doodle. I've got, hang on, what have I got? This is my latest doodle, latest creation. They have a velociraptor. Look, there you go. Very smug, happy velociraptor that I doodled earlier. Whilst I was meant to be taking some notes, but I didn't. <laughs> Me. Such an artist. I'm so, so talented. Just... Well, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, uh, we are joined uh, with Izzy Lawrence. I love it. And, a... and a really bad velociraptor picture. <laughs> it is a beautiful velociraptor. It is. I have, I, have, I have a sticker on the back of my computer that says, and it's it's a T-Rex, and it says, if you're happy, clap your, oh. oh. And it's just looking really sad. And it's well, this hard. is the thing. The only thing I'm pleased with this picture here is if you have a look at its wrists, it is not doing this. This velociraptors cannot do this. Velociraptors do this. So they take their little finger and they touch it to their forearm like that. They do that. Yeah. Because they have, what's it? Semilunate carpal in their wrist bone, which allows them to do that, which is why these arms evolved into wings or could evolve into wings and other theropods so easily. So that is, they do this. They can judo chop, but they cannot do bunny ears. So clapping, <laughs> yeah, they can clap. Yeah, they can clap, but they can't. Um, they can't do that. Like they couldn't slap you. I've heard they're terrible <laughs> at charades. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of thing. They, that that sort of nah. They only know how to do. It's a book. So quick bio about Izzy Lawrence. She's a writer, a comedian, a podcaster, and history presenter. Mm -hmm. She has her podcast that she does with the British Museum members only, which is well, quite no, it's funky. not a members only. It's not members well, only. It's everyone. Well, it's, Just it's saying, for everyone. It's for everyone. It's called the member cast because it basically. <laughs> I, I, remember, stuff. I remember. I remember your bit about how, when you were in the meeting for the the creation of that name, and they that still was, that was a lot of fun. And they still they didn't realize. Yours. I know. It was, it was basically, I'd got them to, to be fair to them, I realised that Membercast, because the British Museum has a podcast which they sort of update reg intermittently, so the members sort of came to me and said we want, you know, to do stuff about the members' lectures and what's going on with the membership that's available to everybody so that people know that we do a membership stuff. And, yeah, and, and they said, oh, how about calling it the British Museum Membercast? We've got the podcast, let's call it the Membercast, that'd be quite nice. And it was about, what, about a week into it and they'd done all the artwork and then mm. I pointed out it sounded like a plastic ass penis 
and <laughs> <laughs> as you do. it's like a members cast yeah but um yeah so that that's you can download listen to that everywhere though if you want to it's very good very good latest one i did the history of egyptologists not egyptology so yeah if you want to know about how much you know the europeans really took over in egypt in um yes the early 19th century in particular or particularly lovely to your countrymen uh that is that is there so yeah <laughs> as far back as champillon when napoleon uh fun fact is he actually um where I live, the area mm-hmm. is called Dechela, which is like a like a harbor part, the the port between Alexandria and where I live, which is Agami. And Dechela is actually where one morning everyone woke up and saw Napoleon's fleet Ooh. off the coast, <laughs> yeah. and he arrived with fifty five thousand soldiers. And I don't know if it was the Berbers or the Mamluks who basically took Napoleon's army on a wild goose chase throughout Egypt. And he lost half his numbers, but not through combat, primarily because of dress attire and disease. Yeah. And they were abandoned there because the British and everybody else had taken his fleet away. So his fleet had to just jump everybody off. And they've spent ages going after you lot. I was going after you lot and murdering them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having a lovely time. And failing. And then, and failing. And then was it? No, the guy who was took over after the Napoleonic um, stuff happened. Um, was, like, he was like he was like an Ottoman, but he sort of took over the running of Egypt. He, his name was Muhammad the Ali. The no, Muhammad man. Ali. No, is that how you say it? Well, no, Pasha is Turkish for basically in the Ottoman Empire. Like you had the Pasha of Cairo, the Pasha of oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex, yeah, yeah. and then you had the Pasha of Egypt. So I think the Pasha of e- or the 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 guy who was ruling was Muhammad Ali. That is true. Yeah, yeah. His mosque, I see it every now and then. Different different one but he um he basically wanted to modernize Egypt a lot and as a result he invited a load of kind of weird Europeans over who came over and basically dug everything up and nicked stuff so that was good um (laughs) then the curse of the mummy took care of them (laughs) well yeah yeah but you know still got quite a lot of it anyway so that's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know, it's funny about like, I remember many, many years ago, I was flying on Egypt there and the in-flight magazine is called Horus, believe it or not. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and mm. there was an article in there that actually was talking about, was it Howard Carter who un, who opened Tutankhamun's tomb? I think tomb? that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think and, that's right. How Carter, that rings a bell. And basically the financier, the the financier of the whole expedition was the first to die from this curse, as was several other people. But it wasn't a curse so much as it was seen to be the microscopic elements of bacteria that were sealed in the tomb for Mm. a couple of millennia. And then when opened, they inhaled it. And it was just an infection of like that. That was what it was. The oh, possibly, or they just you know didn't look after themselves very much and got ill. I mean, <laughs> or it's, it's the curse, curse of the pharaoh. <laughs> or it's the curse of the pharaoh. Sorry, yes, could be the logical um, explanation. Mm. So, 
one thing I did do find out in our research about you was the, and of course, because I've seen your postings, the artwork, the illustrations for your book, the something Letty Peg. I'm so sorry. Hang on, I've got, I've got a copy of it. Here it I've is. Got Look, a copy. You can read it and nobody need know. Unstoppable. Thank you. Sorry. There you go. The Unstoppable Letty Peg, which is about um, suffragettes in set in 1910 which is what every little kid wants to read about, 1910, proper snooze fest. No, violence, lots of violence, lots and lots of violence. Um, yeah, it's quite fun. It's um, women beating up men, which is what they did then, because a woman called Edith Garrod taught the um, suffragettes how to do jiu-jitsu to stop them being arrested. And uh, yeah, and this is about a little girl who uh, <laughs> uh, basically learns jiu-jitsu with the suffragettes um, sneakily. And uh, she gets into lots of scrapes and adventures. So that's um, it's technically it's for like nine to twelve or eight to twelve, I think, is who it's recommended for. But um, I know uh, Jitsuka. Beautiful for all like, ages. I know fifty-five-year-olds who read it and quite liked it. So you know, <laughs> it's um, but there it is. It's it's fun. It's good. And if you want to support me, this is the best way to do it: is to buy a copy of my book and give it to a short person or just somebody who wants a fun read. That is. It's my first book. It's like proper grown up. Look, it's not self published. Look, somebody else paid me. Look, Bloomsbury. I know. Did like, thing. I did the thing. I got. I got a. You know. And I've just finished you got writing a real my grown up stamp. <laughs> I know. Just like so great. You know, it's, it's it's Bloomsbury. So like, I could be J.K. Rowling in it. I won't be, but I could be. J.K. <laughs> Rowling without the politics. <laughs> Well, oh yeah, yeah. None not, of the politics. Not without her. Po well, rephrase that. Without yeah. her politics, with your own yeah, politics. Not getting involved in that one. Not getting yeah, involved. No, no, in that no, one. Not touching that. Yeah. With the, I'm, no, I'm no. Arab. I'm not no, no, even no. going to afford to touch that with a ten foot pole. <laughs> Where's the gonna... best place for us to purchase your your books? Um, you can go to Izzy. Well, yeah, Amazon's fine. You can go to Izzy.com. You can go direct to Bloomsbury. Any shop. If you've got a local, if you've got a local bookshop that you love, who's struggling in the pandemic, do that. Get it from there. Um, if you want a signed copy, go to izzy.com and you can get them from there. But well, well I personally will book. I personally will be getting my copy when I come back to the UK because I found out some disturbing things about importing and exporting and customs yes. and excise here in my native country. You could always get it on Kindle or as an audiobook if you wanted to do that. So you, do you don't need to get it, it as I don't, but I've got a very good actress who does, who can do all the voices. Because I can do the voices, but I can't do all the voices. So she does, she's called Annie Arlington. She's blooming great. And so she does everybody's accent better than I can. Because my mm. accents, I've got like four and that's it. So and I write more accents than I can do. I'm sure you've got a few more accents in there. I mean, you, you, you definitely, you've, you've traveled around the world, so. Uh, well, your book that actually led me to do some research because I was curious, you know, was your book and Shanghai New uh, Shanghai Nights, the film with Jackie Chan and uh, I know it. <laughs> were those two things? I don't want to say because like then there was also I think even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, mm -hmm. would give would give like for someone there was like some element of Sherlock Holmes was trained in the art yeah. of hand to hand combat. And I found out that it was in 1898 that Jiu-Jitsu came over to the UK with a gentleman by the name of Edward William Burton Wright. Yes, so Edward Burton Wright, he um, he 
he kind of imported people. So he's already doing stuff. So he, he was already, he basically invented mixed martial arts in the UK because mm. he used, I think they used Savat, which is a French wrestling, they used Schwingen. They used all different types of European, um, like beat him up, you know, fist, bare knuckle fighting, that sort of thing. But then they also got him um, involved in Japanese uh, martial arts as well. So it was um, Yukiro Tani, who was in this book, and another one of his mates whose name just escapes me completely because why wouldn't it? It's in my head all the time unless I'm talking about it. Um, but yeah, they came over to the UK and um, Tani stayed and his mate left, but they trained in um, in all of the you know martial arts and they trained up people. But Edward Barton Wright um, invented his mixed martial art, which was a gentleman with the top hats and the canes and the capes. <laughs> that that he called, he named, he worked it all out himself. He pinched it from all over and he called that Bar Titsu, which is the beautiful name of any martial art, Bar Titsu, Barton Wright, so Bar and Titsu, a bit like jujitsu. And um, yeah, and that is what Sherlock Holmes is trained in. It's specifically like um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writes that it is Bar Titsu that Sherlock Holmes does. But when you're a suffragette and you don't have a top hat and you don't have your pocket watch, you've only got like a parasol and some like spiky shoes. What do you do? And this is where Edith Garrett comes in because she teaches the suffragettes to use what they know in, in what they have on them to defend themselves. So they sort of manage to, they sew special dresses where they can put Indian clubs in their skirts and then whack people around the head with them and that sort of stuff. And they throw people over them quite a lot and wrist lock them, break their fingers. Do you know what year jujitsu was invented? If you go right the way back, it's like 1100 or something like that, because that's when... Well, the research I got was 1532. It's it's, it's a debate, because basically what jujitsu comes from is, you know, peasants defending themselves against samurai warriors. Mm -hmm. So the samurai would come in on their horses and they'd try and pillage the peasants to get you know, and they'd been paid for by some warlord. And the peasants would defend themselves with your classic, you know, your bow, which is your your stick, which would have originally been like, you know, a bit of farming equipment. And, you know, all of these little sort of like batons that you get are all stuff that you find. You know, that, um, that fork that um, people use that, well, I can't remember which Teenage Turtle has it, but they've got oh, three-pronged fork. Size that Raphael. is a farming equipment. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's for farming equipment and all comes from that. So to say it's invented, I mean, maybe it was called jujitsu then for the first time, the gentle way. But yeah. it is it is all about using somebody who's got a lot of power over you in order to um, uh, and using their force against them and you not putting much strength in, which is why it's very suitable for women and for peasants without all the armor. What's really interesting though, that um, I found is like when I do jujitsu, because obviously I do do jujitsu, I do. Um, I know, I've like, seen the pictures. There's, there's certain moves, there's certain moves that you do. So when you're defending against a knife, there's a certain knife attack where they come around the side and they try and stab you in the kidney, but mm. they do it really confusingly from the side. And this is actually, it's in all sorts of, it's in, um, I can't remember what the Israeli training is called. Oh, Krav I did some of it. Krav Magrath, there you go. They do that too. They do that defense. British army does that defense. Even police officers in the UK are, are, are blocking this defense. And I was just thinking, nobody's doing this. And the reason is in samurai armor, there's a gap up the side where they sew it together. So actually it's a really good attack if you're wearing samurai armor to try and get your blade in between. Nobody else has that. Just <laughs> this particular defense from a side thing goes through to this day and everybody learns it. And you're just like, 
is this a common attack? Why would, <laughs> you know, it's a really odd one, but it just goes to show that <laughs> it takes a while for martial arts to update. I think it become useful. But actually, if you think about most conventional suits of armor, like let's say medieval armor, the front and the back are usually attached via straps on the shoulders and on the sides. So that is probably where the armor is weakest. It is kind of where the armor's weakest, but basically for an arm in that sort of armor, your idea is to get you on the floor, then you can't get up, and then to get a small dagger and stab you. And you're not going to stab there so much. You're going to stab in the groin where the armor stops there, because that's where you can get the femoral artery and kill somebody quite quickly. Yeah. I think about this sort of stuff a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Murder. Well, it's efficient. I applaud your efficiency. Exactly. <laughs> you're, you're, among your, you're among your tribe. Someone you scrapes myself <laughs> i yes. applaud your efficiency good i am i'm glad uh, what drew you, you know, to this aside from your love of history what what martial arts and that sort of stuff and martial arts yeah um basically i think i had a bad back and then i was also reading about the suffragettes and what they were doing and i was thinking i need to take some exercise i need to do stuff and i thought oh i'll give this a go see if anybody's doing it and i googled it and i found it and i had like a go at it and I thought oh this is really fun and then I didn't stop so I mean it's been really bad this year obviously because I haven't been able to get on the mat and haven't been able to you know do any I haven't been able to beat anybody up for so long it's really annoying know. Or, you know, there is no de-stressor nicer than aiming to punch your friend in the face and then finding yourself slammed onto the floor and winded with their knee in your ribs that is my favoritest thing to do but unfortunately <laughs> I haven't been able to do it for ages and it's a shame because I, I just got my dark blue belt which is one below um brown belt in my foundation of um jiu-jitsu because I do Japanese people just going what did you talk about knives for I do jiu-jitsu I'm Brazilian jiu-jitsu it's not the same as Brazilian jiu-jitsu we do do a bit we do all the groundwork and the chokes and everything else but that's like a tenth of what we do the majority of us it's all about multiple attackers and trying not to get killed Ultimately, yeah. no, if somebody comes at you with a knife, you're getting stabbed, even if you're a third dam. If somebody comes at you crazily, you get you basically absorb it with the bits which you can get cut without you dying, like the outside of your arms right. as much as possible. You hit them in the face as much as possible and grab onto that knife and kick them uh, and then try and disarm it. That's all you can do. And um, yeah, it's- I take it you don't play video games, Izzy. Not very much, no. Because there's one video game I think you'd actually enjoy. Oh, yes. It's called Sleeping Dogs. And it's basically Grand Theft Auto meets Bruce Lee. Ooh. You play, <laughs> you play a Hong Kong police officer that goes undercover in the triads and you drive around Hong Kong and you get to do a lot of martial arts, level up, get into street oh, fights. I but think you don't that... actually, the trouble with video games is you don't ever actually rotate over your own head. Do You'd you? You just do that here, and that is not as good as unless you get a VR. Things. Unless you get a VR headset. That's true, but you'll end up smashing your computer. It's not good. This no. is, this is Tell me, do you know of the martial arts Win Chun? 
Have you heard of Slappy, Wing Chun? Slappy, slap, slap. Of course I've heard of Wing Chun, but I can't. Slappy, slappy, slap, slap, can't do. I mean, this is my Wing Chun. There you go. No, I, I, the, the beauty of jiu-jitsu is you, you don't have to be able to have very good accuracy at hitting people. The idea is you trip them up when they're hitting you. You hit them with the planet, not with your fists. That is the idea. No, I wasn't yeah, sure. So. I mean, like, if you've heard of it, I mean, did you know who invented Wing Chun or who it's said no. invented Wing Chun? No, I don't. It was a woman who actually invented that one style of Chinese boxing that is actually technically the only fighting style that is undefeated in the different fighting styles, like the North style, the South style. There's a great film out called Ip Man. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly suggest you watch it. Basically, if you know who Bruce Lee is, obviously you do. Yeah. <laughs> The guy who taught Bruce Lee is okay. Master Ipman, who taught mm -hmm. Bruce Lee the style of Wing Chun, which is essentially a great film. It's Putting a, a candle act. out with your fist. Uh, no, that was more, I, I don't know which That's film that more... was. No, I remember but that. One punch type stuff. I don't know. We could talk it, about it, martial arts all day, by the way, because I am a huge do. martial arts fan. Okay. Well, I'm 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 more of a idiot who gets hit in the face a lot because she doesn't move quick enough. But you know, that's <laughs> my um my sister and I. Well, my sister bought it. She got a reflex bag, and we've been boxing right it's been oh, the first nice. since I've. So I've been in my fair share of scrapes, but I've never mm -hmm. taken like a class because I I grew up with parents who were very much like, oh well, if you don't put yourself in that situation, you're not going to need it. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but like, that's not how the world works. And so I never got to take it. So now we're taking like boxing for the first time. And what you were saying earlier, my, uh, my friend called and said, how's it going? You know, your sister moved in with you. How's that going? And I go, oh, we just been beating the shit out of each other for, for three weeks now. Right. With the, with the gloves and the, the mitts and everything. And it's been great. And I'm, I'm really God, I wish I could take classes. It's killing me that I can't because it's just not it safe. No, it's not safe to do it because it's basically all martial arts, particularly jiu-jitsu, where the idea is to get as close as possible. I mean, Taekwondo, you could keep your distance and just kick each other in the face, you know, just from a distance <laughs> on one leg like they do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, jiu-jitsu jiu is the idea of weathering as many punches as possible, getting in as close and then forcing them to the floor. Is Kendo yeah. the one with the stick and the masks? possibly oh yeah you know kendo's no no ken um oh hang on no, no yeah kendo's the one with the swords you could do that one. that's perfect yeah. covid martial arts like, you're already wearing a mask yeah indeed you know fencing <laughs> you'd be fine yeah fine with fencing because you're in a full thing you could put your mask on gosh your breathing would be so hard anyway yeah but um no fence is quite good I, I i tried it for a bit um and it's you get you get a lot of you end up like a Dalmatian where they get you, so mm. you got little you know you get little tiny little bruises all over you, um, and yeah, and it's that thing of if you can get your sword to this point because everybody holds the sword like that, if you can just get your sword here, I find you can bend that finger back and it really upsets them, and you can win that way. That is what you aim every time. If you're horrible like Izzy, so <laughs> I was I think I just did foil. I didn't do the rapier and that sort of thing. We get whipped with it as well. That was a bit I was yeah. I enjoyed it. I like her. That. 
Oh no, it's very, very not. Very what what? <laughs> I know I did that. I did that when I was at Oxford. So very. <laughs> well, I also did Proper. fencing at Hill House, rather. Oh, very good. Yes, and I've been watching a lot of The Crown recently, so I keep finding yeah, myself getting into uh, the I, Prince Philip. They they glossed over a lot of you know because they did um, the abdication in that, and yes, they they, they really glossed over the fascism. They really, no, 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 but like, have you seen it all yet, or you only watched one it's season? Uh, no, I think I think I'm I think I'm up to date. I'm up to date. So they did they did a bit of the you know uh, what's his name Bat Batten's takeover in the seventies, but yeah, um, in the fifties wasn't it? But no, no, no. I'm, I'm Edward the Eighth. Like here, no, they did this... in that one episode. They they showed all the pictures of him with the and then when with Tommy Lucell's the personal secretary of the queen the one that was retiring mm. told her all the horrible gory details did he tell mm. her i can't remember this but did he tell her, her that, that he, you know he visited the well, concentration camps before they were concentration camps yeah yeah well that's that's not the bad stuff the bad stuff is in 1940 he was in um france so this is edwards having married um what's her face wallace simpson so they got married in france and then war was declared. And then Edward told the Nazis that the British knew their French invasion plans. It was because so an airplane had got changed. shot down. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, they, then, mentioned, they, they mentioned that. Okay. As, well as, as well as him saying, you can keep bombing Dunkirk's them. his fault. Yeah, no, yeah, know. no, yeah, you can keep bombing them. Well, yeah, if, if, the, if the Germans hadn't, you know, change their plans, Dunkirk wouldn't have happened. We'd have been able to keep a hold in France for a bit longer and maybe Paris wouldn't have fallen. So he was a, a proper traitor. And what's really mm -hmm. weird is like, because they sent him to Barbados in the end and he was still trying to get in touch with Nazis when he was out there. And Wallace yeah. Simpson was doing really weird. They'd go up to Miami and they'd be like sending, like the FBI did a full report on it. And they were sending like messages up to New York in their washing and things like that. It was really odd. And yeah, it's just, uh, and this whole idea that they were in love is ridiculous. Oh, she's gone. No, no, she, oh. she, she's just adjusting something on her settings. Okay, she's adjusting. That's all right. It's not because I've said something terrible. I mentioned the FBI and she disappears, you see. But yeah, it was, Um, it, it's it's shocking. And it's, it, it's mainly, you know, it's not like she was even faithful to him. So it's like, were they really in love? love story was it or was it just a way to just because if the british government hadn't got rid of him using the excuse of this woman then what would have happened he'd have been king edward the eighth he'd have been in power when hitler basically got in power and he would have probably called the king's party maybe put churchill at the head of it. this is what lord beaverbrook wanted to happen have a king's party in parliament which basically meant the king had a third of parliament that didn't need to be voted for therefore could control parliament just through that and then we'd have had a quizzling king he'd have just gone oh nazis lovely let's just put the swastika over everything it looks dead smart let's be their friends and then britain would have been fascist i mean literally that's what probably would have happened if he hadn't you know if wallace simpson hadn't got in the way it's quite I'm scary Anyway, 
I'm assuming you must have, because like everyone in lockdown's got Netflix. So I'm assuming you've got Netflix, of course. I've got Netflix. Of course, got Netflix. (laughs) Anyone in Netflix who doesn't, anyone in anyone in Netflix that doesn't have lockdown, exactly. No, I mean, anyone in lockdown doesn't have Netflix. I mean, Netflix. I mean, if you're looking for a person who's responsible, a company who's responsible for COVID. I mean, if you're looking for a conspiracy theory, never mind all of this, you know, Microsoft nonsense. Netflix, Netflix, and Zoom. They're the and, ones who contrive COVID. And Hulu. <laughs> Could be known all of them. And Steam. Amazon Prime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, on Netflix, there's a great events of World War II in color. I don't know if you've seen that Ooh, yet. I haven't seen them, no. I oh my God, Izzy, from do. one history... No. I wouldn't say buff. Nerd. I would Could say we... I'm a history junkie. Nerd. 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 I can't say history junkie. You can't yeah. say history. Yo, you got that. Like, you know. Yo, have you got that? Uh, you got that like Crimean Revolution thing going on? You <laughs> got, like, you, just... you got the Tartar Light Brigade. I could do it. No, anyway. Um, in the dates. <laughs> I've got a bunch of quotes. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a uh, there. What they've done with the great events of World War II in color is they've taken all the stock footage, the black and white footage, made it into color, mm. and they've got all these histo- history nerds <laughs> as well, <laughs> fellow fellow history nerds from around the world, from America, from France, from even Russia and Japan, and I think, uh, and it's really, it, it's a bit of an eye-opener, because like uh, there were things I knew as a history teacher that I was like, you know, know that, I know that, I know that. And then I was like, I didn't know that, which is the, um, that the British and the Americans had a ton of SS prisoners that they just let go. Oh, wow. Doesn't totally surprise me. I mean, you could argue that Edward VIII was one of them. Um, uh, <laughs> Duke of Windsor, was he a Nazi? But yeah, no, the actual SS really they let them go. Uh, oh, well, I, don't I, wanna, they, I don't want to spoil it too British, much for you because I know you're gonna spoilers, it happened. But they lit I knew that they did that for like NASA and everything else because there's a load of Nazi scientists they managed to, you know, get in there. Yeah, no, NASA and even like uh children, Disney, even Disney hired Disney. them. Disney hired oh. a Nazi scientist that did their science show, uh, World of Tomorrow, or something. Hey, kids! <laughs> hey, kids! <laughs> Can we have all of you in alphabetical order? Let's see. Oh, oh you have lovely genetics. Yes. Could we get the janitor over here? <laughs> uh, if you this look at like the measurement of the skull. Speaking yeah, of skulls. Worrying, yes. Speaking of skulls, your TED talk. Mm, my TED talk. Your TED talk. <laughs> About the brain and skull. About the brain and the measuring mm. of the brains and then how you led from that to the uh, the socialization of human beings and that number. Now, the yeah. my co-anchor was kind enough to help me word this so I don't make it come out like word okay. bolognese, which is over the trajectory of human evolution from apes yeah. to early humans to modern humans, the number of individuals within a social network has immer- has increased in direct correlation to an increase in brain size. Yes. Now, and the number you came up with in that TED talk, or that was what was 150. Yeah. I, your degree is geography. 
my degree oh, no. is socio. No, no, no. I wasn't making, I wasn't going to diss it. Don't worry. It's coloring in. I know. Well, actually, you'd make a lot of money back in like the 1850s with a degree in geography. I but so I, everybody loves a map. I've got something to fall back on. I could make maps. Especially if you know how to draw a little X and go, look, treasure. My degree was in sociology and one of my uh, friends on the course who was doing social anthropology turned around and said to me a number that I remembered, which was that hunter-gatherer communities would number up to 160. Mm -hmm. So the comedian in me would say to you, do you think that means there are just 10 people? You'd be like, oh, I don't have to keep them happy, you know, screw them. I mean, you have to remember infant mortality. You know, you've got to remember that, okay, you got 160, but about 20 or 30 of them are babies and most of them are going to die. So whatevs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the old people, whatevs. <laughs> well, yeah, but the old people, the old people who get old are really important. So you remember the old people. It's just that anybody below the age of five, chances are dead this year. You know, that's the thing. So, you know, in the wild, humans don't live very long. Pregnant women as well. So what, they're probably going to die about one in three or one in four. Especially um, around so, birds. You know, Oh yeah, no, um, but no, it's just it just it is just what happens. So um, yeah, no, the the idea is it's just that if you look at monkeys and the size of their social groups compared to their brain size, the bigger the brain, the more people or members of their group there are. So macaques only about twenty, chimps up to forty, gorillas a bit more, and it's and and humans. If you actually do the line, we can extrapolate mm. that to about 150. And it was really good back in the past when Facebook was small, because then the average <laughs> user had about 150 things. If you look at people's Christmas cards lists, I mean, when grannies and their Christmas card lists, yeah. they would be writing to about 120 people, which is a really interesting, you know, it all works out. And it's literally, um, it just fascinates me because it means that this massive brain that we've got isn't for this sort of like deep philosophical thing or this advancement of science or anything else. It is just so that we can keep this group of people together and keep everybody in our head and have these social relationships. And right. it's the social relationships that help us survive, not being amazing science wizards or being closer to gods or whatever you want to be, fabulous artists. In fact, everything you see is a facade. Everything, every traffic light you see has been invented, not for traffic safety, but because one little ape wanted to get along with another little ape, but this is the way they only knew how to do it. So everything we see is just somebody going, I want you to be, remember me and be in my group, please. Uh, and that's, you know, ultimately <laughs> what we're doing with life. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing I point out in the TED Talk is that if you look at human inventions, it all kind of makes sense. So that, you know, we sort of have this idea that, you know, we learnt how to, for example, grow crops and we grew, grew crops primarily for survival so that we could, you know, form bigger communities and everything. No, we grew crops. The first crops we grew were for drugs. So they were, they were things like things that we can make into alcohol or there were things like mushrooms or berries which gave us hallucinogenic things. And the reason for that is because it makes it easier, lowers your social anxiety, makes it easier to chat and get along with everyone. And that was more important than feeding ourselves. You know, fire, we've got loads of evidence for fire, almost going back before humans, right? We've got loads mm. of evidence people making fires, but in the last 30,000 years without fire used for cooking. Before then, all it is is extending the daylight so everybody can gather around the fire and you can have a lovely little chat. And, and that's warm. what it's for. You can't do it. Be warm, light, being able to see the human face is really important. You know, that's what it's about. It's not about, 
you know, oh, survival, gathering around, staying warm and cooking. It's not that. It's about extending daylight hours so you can carry on chatting when the sun's gone down and keeping those social bonds. Because, like, macaques do it by picking fleas off each other. They just groom themselves like that. And macaques spend, like, two, three hours a day just grooming. I think they worked it out that if humans did it, it would take us something like 20 hours a day or something ridiculous, and we'd starve to death. But, you know, just trying to... That's why we've learned to talk. That's why we have this language. Previously so that on the we Kardashians. <laughs> we are currently grooming you, dear listener. This is what we're doing. We're grooming you right now with our voices. This is what it is. This is us having a relationship with you without being... You know, if we were macaques right now, I'd be, like, knuckle deep in your back picking out those fleas for you <laughs> but at the moment i am just whispering sweet nothings to you because that's that's kind of what we're for that is our that is the reason we think the way we think that is why we need to express ourselves so much it is this human thing of going in order to survive i need other people and i need other people therefore i've got to make them happy and this is how i make them happy and which is why we do everything I believe the drugs thing because uh, even during uh, Elizabeth Tudor uh, mm-hmm. in her Elizabeth reign, yeah, tobacco. First. Well, no. before tobacco and potato came to us, Queen Elizabeth had a decree that any citizen who owned land over five acres had mm-hmm. to grow cannabis nice. because <laughs> it, it, wait, it gets better because of the hemp because the English at that time and predominantly always had a superior Navy. And one of the reasons the English at that time during Elizabeth's reign had such a phenomenal Navy was that their ropes never snapped because it was made from hemp. Yeah, that makes sense. And particularly at that time, you know, Elizabeth, because she had a paper bull out against her, so she couldn't trade anymore with Europe for a long period of time. All of her trade was going down to Morocco, was dealing with um, the Ottoman Empire. Well, the, I don't know what you'd call them back then. They weren't Ottoman the Empire, was it? But they'd deal with, yeah, exactly. But they, would deal, they were dealing with Morocco a lot. And so there's huge amounts of trade going on with North Africa at this time, which is where you can see the sort of influence. You get a lot of sort of Islamic art coming to Britain during Elizabeth's reign as well. And they were all high as fuck. Well, anyway. we all know where the term. <laughs> well, we know where the term assassin comes from. Yeah, it is. Um, it's because they smoked hashish, and they, it was. Do you know those drills? Yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. So yeah, it's literally that's what they they got absolutely high on marijuana, and then went out and murdered someone. <laughs> the hashashin, the assassins. Mm, so I have never smoked cannabis and then become more murderous well, i know no, it's actu- a weird one isn't it well no like, actually the way i understood it was like, like that- if i were to smoke cannabis i'd probably stop plotting a murder not start <laughs> no, <that's> plotting <laughs> a murder <laughs> the way it was explained to me by somebody else once was uh the idea was that it was very much the way it's been illustrated in assassin's creed in the movie like mm-hmm. that whole brotherhood like in a sort of like in the middle of like nowhere in some type of mountaintop castle, the assassins would be given not just uh, alcohol, women, and all their uh, worldly pleasures overloaded, but they would, you know, sort of ply them with a combination of marijuana or hash in those days, as well as wine and women. and, And when those men were in a very sort of like you know subjective state they would just be sort of told subliminally 
you must go and kill that person. So it was like, uh, (laughs) but again, it's like Bill Hicks says, have you ever seen two stoners fight? No, because it's fucking impossible. Hey, (laughs) hey, I don't care enough. (laughs) Hey, what? Nothing. Okay, bye. (laughs) You know, it's like. (laughs) Pretty much. Though it's been used forever, that stuff. I'm trying to remember what they were called. I want to. The ha oh, doesn't matter. What, you know when Morris? you got a name in your head and you're just going, no, no, no. The people who lived in the Russian steppe. So this is not Mon- Mongols and stuff. This is people back before you know in during Roman times. The people there and they're called not something Saracens. as Scythians. 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 That's Scythians. what I'm thinking of. Scythians used to. This is what they used to do. No murdering anybody. They'd just um, um, basically hotbox themselves inside tents. And they'd, they'd smoke as much marijuana in the tent as possible, get completely so, take off their clothes. And they had really elaborate body tattoos and they'd just do dances like this. And so the animals moved. And then of course, cause they were out of their minds, the animals would come alive and they'd know what to do and everything else. And it was a, and this is why we know Herodotus never saw a naked Scythian because he never mentions their tattoos. Ah, cause he, all this time, I didn't think it was the Scythians. I thought it was the Assyrians who did that. Oh, probably. The Assyrians did everything. Because the Assyrians... <laughs> Mainly murder I, people. Because what the Assyrians <laughs> used to do is they used to heat up a massive block of rock in mm. a room, and then they would just literally dump bushels of weed on it. <laughs> Hence the term getting stoned. Nice! There you go. I didn't know that. There yeah. we go. Oh, I'm happy now. I learned a thing. That's good. It's the Assyrians are mental. <laughs> I'm so, it's very surprising when you look at the Assyrians that they liked getting high because if you've ever seen like their written text and just the way that it, it's literally written with little wedges imagine getting a screwdriver and just like trying to make things and really tight with no gaps at all and it's all about admin everything cuneiform? they're writing is really yeah cuneiform everything they're writing is just about like and you owe me six um (laughs) he owes dave this that there's a wonderful one of my favorite objects in the british museum they've got an assyrian tablet it's a clay tablet with a load of this tiny writing on it and it's in a clay envelope sealed which is just a lovely little thing right and so the British Museum scanned it. So they didn't open it, they didn't break it, but they scanned it to see what was inside. And inside is a dude complaining that his last two letters that he'd written hadn't gone, had gone unanswered and it was really bad. And still it's in this clay envelope thousands of years later, it's still unanswered. So you, know, you just feel for the dude. <laughs> but it's, you don't um, call, you don't write, you don't send carrier exactly. pigeon, nothing. But it's this big thing, the Assyrians, that, that empire is just crazy, Ashurbanipal and all the rest of them. But the thing that they were doing, like you can go, you know, when the British Museum's open again, I recommend going, because you can go and see, um, like they've got these wonderful objects from Assyria and you, you've got these walls where they have the lion fights. And so you have the king going after trying to hunt the lions and they capture the lions, bring them to the king so the king can hunt them. And the mm. best job in the world, there's a little boy who, who basically his job is to open the lion cage and then quickly get in his own cage to stop the lions killing him. <laughs> Which is, and he's, he's pictured there and you just got to, that's a freaky job of history. If you ever thought you one. had bad job work. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason, and it's so interesting when you think about it, what the Assyrians are doing, because they're basically a, um, 
we're going to rule everybody and we're going to bring order to them and our admin. That's what we want. We aren't our admin. We're going to take their cash. We're going to tell them to stop, you know, doing this. We're going to make sure we can control them by taking their gods and keeping them and you shut up and you do it and we're, we're going to create order. And the lion represents chaos. You see, the lion represents the, you know, the world of chaos and therefore you've got to kill the lion. This is a representation of that. And our admin is the sort of, and this, this terrified thing that almost all humans have. Like if you look at Genghis Khan, he was saying, I am bringing control. I'm joining everything up and to stop the chaos. And it, it, it's all about almost everything we do is this avoidance of chance and chaos and all these things that we can't control. And history is about humans going, no, we must control it. We must, we must, this is why we learn to write and we control and get our fingers in everything. And it's just weird. And evil and chaos are almost identical in people's language and everything else is quite cool. Well, it's like that line from that game I love so much that I've played it four times already. War. War never changes. Mm. There was a, I've got an old John Oliver poster because um, I, I was up at the Fringe same time as him a lot. And so I've got one of his like first ever Edinburgh posters. And um, it's like John Oliver's show and that sort of thing. But his, his quote that he's got at the bottom is, smash the system, then build another one. The fun is in the smashing, which I think is a lovely. <laughs> the fun is in the smashing, actually. The fun is in the, but so is the chaos and that's the danger. So you've got this, so that's why having fun and good things are bad. It's because the chaos is the fun, but it's also the danger. I think it was Nietzsche who said, out of chaos comes order. Yes, and there's a, yeah. There's one thing I need to focus more on. I did a podcast for the British Museum about um, uh, Tantra, and that's a real embrace of chaos and death and everything else and putting your mind in, you know, others' bodies, allowing gods to sort of take over your body and that sort of thing. And it's just really quite scary and cool. But there's not much sex, though. You think it'd be all sex, and it's not. It's just really slick absorbing yourself in the sort of like the moment of everything it's really quite cool like rubbing ash rubbing the um the the the, the ashes of the dead all over your body and sitting in a graveyard and just going this is weird i'm okay with this <laughs> even though i'm freaking out i'm okay because i'm what allowing are you doing myself this Tuesday, to be freaked out sitting in a grave mm. covered in my grandmother exactly that you know um we're surrounded by the crows and everything else and the the dirt and you know, so allowing the then. chaos to be surrounded by the chaos. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I'm just missing any sort of holiday, really. I mean, this is... <laughs> well, hopefully we'll give you a bit of a holiday with uh, this podcast. Um, well, indeed. Well, indeed. It's, uh, it's fun to chat. It's it, very weird. To see. <laughs> you said this was about nothing, and so far it really has been just like, what, what are we... <laughs> Well, I have a question which I kind of asked, and now my yeah. co-anchor who's got a question she would like to ask, oh. I think. Do you have a question? Go on, uh, apparently, I have a question. Um, I wasn't aware that I had a question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know anything about you, Izzy. It's just... My point. I wanted to talk about the the TED talk and the history of of you know the evolution of laughter was something that I studied, and so that yeah. was fascinating to me. And I studied it from a trauma recovery standpoint. So mm -hmm. my sister and I have had like lives are pretty much like two decades of pretty severe trauma. Um, now you're pretty... punching each other. That's that's healthy. 
<laughs> we're out in each other instead of society. It's a way better yeah. move. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Um, no, it, and I moved back from the west coast of the country, and I moved in with hmm. my sister. And for me, coming out of my trauma and out of what I had gone through, I developed more of a sense of humor. Right, I gravitated towards comedy. It was a lifeline for me. For her, it was the opposite. She couldn't. She struggled to laugh at things, to find humor, to understand why it was funny. And so I got really, I, I convinced my dad to send me to school for a semester because I didn't, I didn't get a degree, but I wanted to learn the topic. So mm -hmm. I went to school for, for the semester and then took a follow-up course in anthropology. And that's when I started studying like the opioid receptors in the brain and how, mm -hmm. how laughter increases, how, you know, how those are received and how those messages increase when you're in a social situation. Um, and it was a really interesting, fascinating way to see how laughter and humor brings people together. And you say, it, it makes me laugh because you said, oh, it's no, there's no deeper philosophy. There's no, there's no grand meaning to it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I tend to think that, I, I might be completely wrong, but I tend to think that you know life is just really there's no purpose to it you know cause people want to imbue meaning in everything because as a human we like to tell stories to ourselves to make sense of everything this is what history is it's just a load of stories we're going we know from our own lives a lot of the stuff that happens happens by chance because we don't think about it but in history we imbue all these oh they wanted to do this for this reason they could have just had a bad sandwich you know that might have been the reason <laughs> you can't predict stuff but we love to give because we like the structure because we hate the chaos we need to have the order to it because chaos is scary and yeah so so the no oh, I, I don't know where really know where to go with it but it is it is that idea that you know laughing at stuff it is a way of bonding because if you're all laughing at the same thing you all share something you will get the joke and there are certain jokes which you know like if you see a film and you can just point out that and you can say oh like and you could quote the film then people go so you can see who doesn't know and there is this awful thing in comedy clubs like if you look at the structure of a comedy club what we want as comedians is people sat quite close together mm. a nice low ceiling Mm. comedian lit audience in the dark and it's not just because we want people to be able to see the comedian it's because we want people to forget that they're individuals because if they're an individual they might heckle but also if they're an individual they don't want the crowd's attention a crowd's attention on them is scary right because if you have the if you laugh and you're the only one laughing and the entire room hates the comedian they also hate you now because you laugh <laughs> you're, you're both weirdos and so as as a as a, as a person you want to be able to sort of like fit in and nobody knows so if you cram an audience in together with a nice low ceiling and they're in the dark and they laugh nobody knows who laughed feels more comfortable laughing and joy can be blunt you know it's a sort of weird psychical thing and therefore it really gets a oh we're a group now it's much easier to be a group and anybody any individual i mean any heckler you know as a comedian if you've got a nasty heckler you just use the audience against them just go can you believe this guy does this guy think he's funny and you get the audience to go on side and bully them for you and you don't have to do anything and then you're not a horrible person and they are the horrible person it's it's do you know with bullying and that's the thing but also i mean Nervous laughter is really interesting. So the response to trauma. I mean, for example, the first thing you do to make a small child laugh is you tickle them. And if you've been tickled, it's not funny. 
It is scary. It is horrible. And you've got the massive hands coming at you. And all you can do is go. <laughs> and what that means, you see monkeys do it. Monkeys show their teeth. They go really big eyes and they go <laughs> like this because they want to show that they're not a threat. They're not holding anything. They're not attacking you. They're out of control. They're just like, please don't hurt me. And that's entirely what laughter is. So you get, you know, you get the, in a difficult room, if you're a comic and you're trying to, you know, get, break that awkward silence, you might say something shocking. You might drop a, a swear word or you might say something really inappropriate just to get the nervous laughter going. Oh dear. Oh, nobody thinks that, do they? And that, because they're all crammed together, other people mistake for a genuine laugh and then they feel more comfortable to laugh because there's already noise in the room. So it's all this sort of psychology of grouping together, but you can't, I don't have any friends ever who I don't share a sense of humor with that I can't laugh with, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe I've had a few fuck buddies in the past, actually, but nobody else. <laughs> you either share sex or laughter. That's it. You know, it's got to be one or two. To our listeners in Saudi Arabia, a fuck buddy is. Uh... <laughs> I have yeah. no answer for that. Moving exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> oh, they have them. They know. <laughs> they, they they hook up by Bluetooth. <laughs> well, I've heard stories. You know, they... I've heard stories that basically <laughs> what girls and guys. And I've heard this. I don't know if this is true. So I hope no one from the Saudi secret service is listening. Obviously, me. anybody listening from Saudi secret, we're we're lying. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But lie. apparently. Allegedly, <laughs> young men and women in Saudi Arabia will have their Bluetooth on and exchange phone numbers via Bluetooth. Oh, clever. Yeah, that works. That's, I mean, if you look at um, the only thing you could compare it to in sort of like um, recent British history is like the homosexual move, you know, men before homosexuality was um, allowed you know, it was legal, you know, yeah. it happens. And you had this really sort of, you had this thing where homosexuality was allowed, it became more accepted. And you had this generation of men who were like, darling, it's just not the same. There's no, there's no frisson, you know, there's nothing. The part of the reason that so many men liked it, you know, you have these stories about men having sex in public toilets and they did. And the reason they did that was partly the frisson, they might get caught. And it was all of this stuff as well as wanting the connect connection with somebody they fancied and wanted to do stuff with and that was lost when it was legalized so all i'm saying to your listeners in saudi arabia is if you are having illicit sex via bluetooth and swapping things it's not as romantic as you think it's, really, <laughs> it's all allowed keep it illegal yeah i mean yes you might be punished and greatly but it is so much sexier when it's when it's naughty you know <laughs> well you know <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be setting foot in Saudi Arabia anytime soon. <laughs> well, no, we know it's bad. We'd never do that, so it's fine. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've got a dinosaur podcast that's downloaded in Saudi, so I hope I hope I don't get banned. <laughs> but we mentioned sex there, but it is entirely, you know, through the cloaca, so it's fine. It's reproductive. It's, they're not married dinosaurs, but they are allowed. So, <laughs> <laughs> terrible lizards! If you want to ban us, Saudi <laughs> secret police. There you go. Uh, just so that's fine. You're having a lot of fun with this. I can see. <laughs> well, 
I really wish I hadn't mentioned my uncle's names now at the top of this (laughs) 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 never mind never mind well I'm a stupid old white lady it's fine if if there's anything we've all learnt from the Khashoggi incident yes is that even 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 in a Saudi embassy in Turkey you're not safe um yes moral of that story is don't. There is no moral, just avoid Saudi no. Arabia nowadays. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm so glad I don't live there because I know that when this would go, I would have this. This whole part yeah. would be just cut. I it would, would exactly. Be, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't risk it. It would. It would be that shift. You know, right click, delete. Well, it's that weird thing because have you done gigs in Dubai and stuff? Because I haven't done a gig in Dubai. My partner has, and my friends have. Like, I, I have um, a comedian friend. I probably won't. I won't go into it because it's her story and everything. But she went to Dubai and she did a gig. And when she came back, there was a girl in her room for her. <laughs> and she's oh, wow. like, and then the girl was like, oh, and she was like, oh, and then we were like this is awkward and she felt really bad because obviously the girl she's like you know she's like i'm really sorry that you're not getting paid tonight I'm, oh no <laughs> but no like she's a straight girl so it's just like completely inappropriate for everybody but I to have... pretend these things don't go on is mm. well i i because like the dubai scene uh, like from what i hear a lot of middle eastern countries have stand-up comedy but mm-hmm. there's an interesting dichotomy to them. For example, in 2019, I was in Dubai and I was in, I was invited to perform at two different gigs, but then one of them got canceled and the other one, I couldn't make it. But I learned something interesting, which was I tried to like create an, like not create an event or I can't remember, I created like a post or something that was like, you know, not necessarily an event for the venue, but it was an event for me as, you know, for my comedy page. And when I did that, the person that was booking the gig got in touch with me by WhatsApp, said, can you please take that post down? And I was like, what? what? Wow. I mean, I can, but why? And it was no, it, it, the weird reason was because it's to do with taxes as well as to do with permits. As in, I don't have a permission from the government to make a post about an event like that. It can only be from the people. So it was just this really, that was Dubai. In terms of Egypt, um, certain venues have to get a license to have a live entertainment. So like, you know how you can walk into any pub in the high street in the UK, walk up to the- Not now, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously not now, but you know pre-COVID, previously on the days before COVID, um, there you could walk into like the pub, talk to like the manager and say, you've got like a function room. Can I use that function room once a week for a comedy night? And they'll be like, yeah, sure. And you know, if there's a bar up there, then great. And if not, then that's why you have intermission. And for the landlord or whoever owns that bar or establishment, it's a win-win because they're getting mm-hmm. extra customers. But I don't think that that pub landlord, because you can refresh my memory, because I remember I used to run gigs at university and I didn't have to go and approach the council or anything like that. And 
likewise in Britain, you don't have to approach. So it's a very different used mindset. To. You used, used to go to, and approach. When, well, yeah, when you, I think in the 1960s, um, right. you couldn't perform any play without, I think it's the Lord Chancellor or somebody like that had to read it first to make sure if it, it was suitable for the British public's consumption. So it's quite modern that you could do anything. We're not American, you know. This is the thing. We had, we had curtailed speech like that. So if you had a, the only way you could do whatever you liked was if you owned a private establishment with members, which is why Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and that lot bought the establishment in London, that famous comedy club where loads of people used to perform, was because they um, everybody was a member who um, went to watch it in the audience. This is how they did it, because otherwise they couldn't have done um, you know half the stuff that they did, because um, it was far too rude. Um, what what that was? Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on that. Um, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore thing. They Derek and Clive. There we go. Derek and Clive. That couldn't be performed other than in the establishment and in America because it was so filthy. It was just naughty. Um, <laughs> so so yeah. And and that that law got changed. I think quite late. I think it was the 70s or 80s that that changed. So you know there were strict you know, laws as well. I know this as well, because um, Mary Lloyd, who was one of the biggest comedians in the 19th century, she right. like was headline five gigs a night and just, you know, people queue up. I think there was like, she didn't do any radio or telly. And when she died, there was like 40,000 Londoners lining the streets for her funeral. It was ridiculous. Um, but she used to sing songs and she used to sing really innocent songs, but really lewd. So she would sing songs which are like, you know, I, I sit among the cabbages and leeks, that sort of thing. So implying that she was pissing on the cabbages and that sort of thing, as well as, you know, he takes me up the whatever, you know, the, all of these songs. And when she got taken to court, which she did repeatedly because she wasn't legally allowed to be this naughty, you know, in front of audiences, she'd sing them straight. And then the judge would be there going, never having been to a musical, going, well, I don't understand what's wrong with this. This is the sort of songs my daughter sings. This is absolutely ridiculous. And she gets off Scott Free. She, however, was banned from America. She was banned from America because she went to go and do a tour in America, but she was travelling with a man who wasn't her husband. And the Americans said, no, no, can't have that. And so they sent her back. The Americans yeah. were more reserved. In that way. They're a bit weird about sex, America. They're yeah. fine with violence, though, so we like them. Totally fine with violence. A bit like Actually, the Middle East. No sex. <laughs> but the Middle, East, Middle East do sex better than America. Stop <laughs> it's it. proper kinky. It's proper kinky. That's true. That's true. We are we are the freaks out of the. You are the, you are the, the biggest porn pool. consumers out there as well. We, and and manufacturers now, if you yeah, if you've been browsing. It's not allowed. <laughs> no, it's very taboo um, exactly. Izzy I gotta ask you because like you seem like this you're like a writer you're a podcaster mm. you're a performer you're a theater you're I don't know I'm if like you've the got theater back but like I don't, got, I don't, no, no theater not really no just theater background whatsoever just no. comedy just comedy just showing off what, what I wanted to ask you is because like I generally do ask all my guests this one question which is like how would you deal with overcoming creator's block because like I've see, I got the chance to see you live myself when we were gigging at Swindon in 2015. Oh yeah I remember yeah. <laughs> that was a nice gig that was a nice gig. It's, it's a sweet little gig that it's it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
It's the yeah. thing with those gigs. With, uh, with uh, it was a. Uh, I got it through Jeff Whiting. I think yeah, you also as right. well got it through yeah. Jeff Whiting. But like, what I mean is, yeah. like, you don't seem to struggle for creativity, or do you? Or how do you deal with that? I cheat. Oh. I cheat. It's very easy. So if I'm struggling with something like stand-up comedy, I yeah. will go away from it and I'll do something else. This is why I do so many things: is I just ignore it. And then I'll come back to it when the other stuff becomes too hard. And then you've got this sort of constant cycle of stuff to do. And also when you say creative, like my history books, like I do the unstoppable Letty Peg, it is fiction, but I'm not making the whole thing up. It's got actual dates and actual people in it. And therefore I can just go, well, I need to put that in. I need to put that in. And it kind of gets rid of the blank page. I don't suffer with the blank page hardly ever because I don't let myself have the blank page. I'm always got to, I'm always giving myself a limit. For example, I do, I do this comedy circuit, but when it's there, but I also <laughs> do shows specifically for, so I'll do a show at Dulwich Picture Gallery, or I'll do a show at the British Museum or whatever, and, or at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And I will do a show for them, which means I'm limited. I've set myself little limits and I've got to come up with a joke about that. I do very well at, there's lots of stand-up history shows and um, Steve Cross does shows like, um, uh, what's it? It's a science show off and things like that. And mm. they give you really limited like titles of what your set has to be about. And then you've got to write material for that, which would never work anywhere else. I've got 20 minutes on the scro scrotum frog. Okay, there is a frog called the scrotum frog. It lives in Lake Titicaca. It couldn't be funnier, but no regular Friday night audience wants to hear about that. They want to hear about, you know, your life and like fun times. Like, what is she talking about Lake Titicaca for? What's that? But um, so getting, finding the good, you know, the, th the limits, box yourself in more. If you're, if you're struggling for creativity, give yourself less and make yourself concentrate in a smaller box. Like I say, you know, sexual restrictions make sex better. Uh, this is obviously a way of making comedy better. Is just don't allow yourself everything. Keep yourself in, you know, smaller spaces, and you'll break out of them in creative ways. That's one that has to be one of the most original um, analogies I've ever seen to creators block. <laughs> restrictions sex restrictions yeah there i can see go. the i can see the correlation <laughs> um so with the lockdown have you been doing uh, online gigs yourself i've done i i did in the gap between the thing i've done a few of the zoom stuff and it's awkward um, it's just really awkward. I mean, apparently people have loved it because they've commented underneath that they love it. And you're just like, how do I know? <laughs> you know, it's not, so, it feels, it's like you're stripping in front of a blank wall. It's not good. So it's like, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, I did, I did a gig for cars. I did a, a did in, in Didcot. So that was weird. Um, I oh, had this, really, it went haunt. really well. Yeah, they, they, you can hear them laughing through the glass. It's really, because they've each got a speaker inside their car, so they can hear you, and you're in front of the stage. And But I was I was emceeing the night, so I was sort of like on in between each act. So I started off at the beginning, and I was getting good laughs, and that sort of thing. And it, just before I was introducing the headline act, I was sort of warming them up, waiting for people to sort out their, um, you know, their electronics at the back. And I just had this image, because they all had their lights on, the front row all had their lights on. I just had this image of them all just accelerating forward really slowly. <laughs> 
And I thought that'd be the worst way to die, <laughs> trying to tell a joke and just go, I'm really freaking out. <laughs> ah, I like it. So, so I don't know, your headline act and then bought them all. But it's, um, I when missed it. When not to do acid at a yeah. car gig. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very weird because you sort of convince yourself you don't miss it. And then you really, when you're on stage again, you're just like, oh, I remember this me. You know, do you remember the old you? you know, it's, there's this huge wave of nostalgia and you're almost tearful just going, oh my gosh, oh, I'm telling a dick joke. Oh, <laughs> the delights. Um, but it's it's doing a doing stand-up comedy for Zoom is... I've, I've basically restricted myself to doing it where I have to write for the gig again. So I'm writing stuff for that specific night, doing a specific thing. I find it awkward to talk about intimate details to my computer it <laughs> you know what if you muck it up and then you're actually talking to your psychiatrist or something it's just not right you know it's just because yeah. um, it is it is so much a conversation in comedy it's more than that than any it, other art form it's really you need that feedback in order for it to in order for your response to seem genuine otherwise it's acting and that's fine and there's nothing wrong with acting but it's it's just icky. Mm. I know what you mean. The the scene like I I, I saw uh, on my social media with the Egyptian comedians here in Cairo. They were doing a gig. The audience were socially distant, but when I saw the comedian that shall I shall not name um, because he's going to be a guest in a in a bit on this podcast. <laughs> But I'm nice. going to address it on. I'm going to address him on this. I'm going to call him on this. I'll be like, dude, you finish your bit and then you in, you introduce the next act, and he basically hands him the microphone. Oh no! And I'm like thinking, that's not good. No, it's not. It's like I I, I went to a funeral on Saturday. Uh, oh. No, no. Before you, it's my friend's father who I'd never met. So I was like there for my friend, uh, obviously. And I don't know if you've ever been to a Muslim, uh, what's known well, as- Well, no, this. I'm a girl. I haven't. Ha! No, you, <laughs> you'd be surprised when you come to Egypt. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, you'd you find Because like, literally, this, this is my experience because my, um, my stepmother's aunt passed away and she passed right. away very suddenly it's very sad but she did it in morocco so i only heard the stories about this because obviously if you you know you stay with the body you wash her feet and everything yeah. else and the men were late because you have to get her down before i think it's the second prayer of the day midday prayers anyway you have to you have to um get her in the ground before then because there's obviously a certain time limit that she's <laughs> and um, my stepmom who is the most lovely woman in the world. She's very English and very Moroccan all at the same time, if you can get the perfect thing. So she's going, no, easy, it was a nightmare. We were waiting, it was like five, two, and we were panicking. And then suddenly they all arrived and they'd been running and they were sweating and they just picked her up and legged it. They legged it, Izzy, they were down there. They were running with her. She's bumping up and down, Izzy. It was a nightmare, it was a nightmare. She went all the way, they managed to get in the ground. I don't know how they did it, it's a long way over. It's like from here to snappy snaps. And that was the line here to Snappy Snaps, which is from her house to the Snappy Snaps on the high street, is how she measured it in distance. And I just thought that was elegance and everything. So I do I do think Muslims handle death a lot better than English people, though. I really respect their, um, you know, the way that well, they do it, because I think it's it, just good. I think it's honest and I think it's caring. 
I like it. Well, the technicality, I mean, like, for example, it's usually within the same day mm. or... Uh, it's, I think it was like, I think it was like 18 hours or something like that. It's, it's weird. Anyway, sorry. It, it, you know it, better it, than it, I do. Well, no, I mean, because like there, because there can be exceptions to the rule. Like, for yeah. example, a friend of mine, his mother passed away in a different country. Mm. And in Islamic law, you're actually supposed to be buried in the country you pass away in. Mm. But like they decided to bring the body back to bury her in Cairo. So it was like, I mean, there are people that will, you know, and obviously if anyone, when you lose a family, like a Muslim, when you lose a Muslim family member in the UK, you can't do it same day. On the contrary, you have to first get the death certificate from the city council. Yeah. And then you have to get a mosque to find a Muslim burial site in London or greater London, depending where you go for. So it's, uh, it's all different. Taunton, Taunton. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Taunton is. It's a place, so don't worry. Miles from London. <laughs> Miles from London. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying this. I'm not sure if that's like, so, I don't know there. if that's like hidden xenophobia. Or no, it's not, comedy. no, it's not at all. It's it's partly where part of my family live, that's all. <laughs> I was okay. bigging up. <laughs> Bigging up Muslims in all other places in the UK. Where's my Muslims from Reading? Yeah. Um, but... Reading, Ikhwanis, where are you at? Yeah, well, hey, there's two mosques on my street. Admittedly quite far apart, but there are. So, there. Yeah, there, Boom. there's two mosques. On the Yo, shut up. <laughs> UK, come on. Well, uh, at least I know you don't live in a BNP hive. This is true. I, I don't. Or EDL. I don't, yes. Uh, to yeah. our non-British listeners, the BNP are basically <laughs> modern British Nazis. And yeah. the EDL are Nazis that don't use an N. <laughs> Correct. One's British, one's English. So one's for Scotland leaving and one's not. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. If you can be racist against Scotland... <laughs> Who are, like they're whiter than toilets up in Scotland. You can't, you know. <laughs> this is a, anyway, uh, this yeah, is they're the, not nice people. This is the first time I've heard you this what, expression, the, whiter than toilets. Yeah, this is this is this is an English this is an Izzy phrase which gets laughs. So she says it a lot. That's fine. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. It's true. I am. When you come to the Middle East, you'll find toilets that are not as white. <laughs> not white. I know. But the, they were also, once oh, there's white. Pussycat. Oh, she's uh, there's, nice. Yeah. There's there's one sleeping on the couch there actually, if you can oh. see her. Oh I I can't. But oh, oh yeah, no, I can, little... I can, I can. Oh yeah, she's yeah. gray, isn't she? Little she's got little oh, yeah. white paws here. Yeah, I have three of them. We've got King, like your, Panic, is it and Tink. Vincent is the gray one, is he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Vincent's the gray one. And Susan's a ginger female, which means she's got too many chromosomes, but shh. She's, fine. she's very stupid and she's got a very long tongue which she can like lick her own eye it's revolting but oh, you know so she's, weird. <laughs> she's just she's a bit so like <laughs> um but you know i, I like i like cats we have i have twin calicos from the same litter right too wow. they, they're, the only difference is their nose color and the one cannot jump off of my couch without just splatting but she can figure out how to open the containers that contain the handmade pigments that I make paint out of. 
Of course. Of yes. Course. So and she can open the drawers and eat the paint out of the drawers. But, but she, not jump she... off a couch. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. And that's about the level that we're working at with, with the cats. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you talked a little, Safe brought up creative block. One of the things that I'm always interested in talking with, with people specifically within the comedy industry about is how they've been weathering lockdown, like Zoom gigs aside, like just how you yourself, yeah, I know, gritting and bearing through it. And where, I mean, I know the world's a place full of uncertainty, uncertainty, but what does that look like for the industry, do you think? And for, th- for artists within it and the support that they're going to need getting through it? Well, um, I'm very lucky because I have other jobs. So I've got a bit of radio, I've got a bit of writing and I've got a bit of, um, um, I even do graphic design. I've been doing that to make ends meet and I managed to make ends meet. I've written a whole other book, which has got sold and everything. So that's all great. Um, The difficulty is that the comedy industry was losing money for the last like 15, 20 years. So the gig, like, yeah, as in like, when I remember first starting gigs got paid more like people who were headlining out got paid more than they did like, you know, in 2019 and the expenses, because the way the comedy works, comedy circuit works in England is you get your fee. And in that you've got to absorb all the expenses of getting to the gig and everything else. And some of the fees are very generous, you know, they go up to all the way up to about 500 quid, really more if you've got some um, corporate work, but they're horrible, but you know, that's sort of, you know, so you get, you get a good range of, you know, choices, but, Obviously, ticket prices for railways gone up. You know, um, yeah, big the time. price of petrol has you know really gone up, and as like a result, cost of living. Yeah, yeah, cost of living's just gone through the roof, and as a result, the actual you're earning less. You know, uh, so I was, I was, I was never, I never, I, I don't know. There's probably a couple of years where I made my full income on stand-up comedy, pretty much, but it just wasn't enough to be able to sort of eat properly and. You know, I was, I was living like a student, making all my money stand up, aren't I cool? And then I just went, no, do you know what I like? New clothes. So I um, <laughs> I like know. to not eat ramen this week. Like, exactly. <laughs> I, I'd like, I'd like, you know, I'd like to sort of invest in my future a bit. So I, like I started to turn writing. my heat on this month. <laughs> exactly. So I, I specialised a bit more and I started finding, you know, the things that I wanted to write, which I could actually earn money for doing. And hence it, it all came together. But the circuit itself, I mean, the venues, like when I was growing up, what did you do? You know, before the internet, you know, you went, you either watched telly or you went to the pub. And that's what people did. Watch telly, went to the pub. And then suddenly buying a beer just went through. I remember when I was like 17, 18, going to Wales and buying a pint for 95p, right? Which is under a pound. And now a pint, if you go to a, you know, you could go to London and buy a pint for eight quid because the taxes and everything else in it, it's just not feasible to run a pub Sorry, anymore. Can you and say people that don't again, drink a as pint much. is how much now in the in, in London? Well, in London, I've seen them for like seven, seven to eight pounds for a one pint, in the, depending on the venue. It's ridiculous. I, Jesus yeah. Christ, said the Muslim. <laughs> usually, usually, um, you know, it's like five quid, uh, but it's a lot for one drink. It is. And yeah. you can't you can't justify that. I mean, even like Coca-Cola, you're looking at two to three quid, maybe more. So mm, you, you've got to <laughs> mm. you've got to you've got to 
it's no longer a thing of oh let's go out every night after because that it used to be the tradition in this country is most people didn't have yeah. you know much of their own space so after work you went to the pub you had a drink there you might have a pie and you come home maybe eat a meal maybe go to that to the pub again and that was how you lived and then tv came and it kind of uh, allowed people to stay at home more but ultimately you know now why go to a pub I mean, that's why comedy kind of took off a bit because it was a reason for landlords to try and get people through the door. But even that's not particularly economically feasible for them. And the actual running of a pub and trying to make any money of it, because it's all tax. I mean, that's the thing, you know, and in many ways, it's much better for us because we're not drinking as much. However, you know, and they banned smoking inside pubs. So you can't do that. And most pubs now are restaurants. I mean, that's how they make their money. They're restaurants. And, you know, you go to the pub to have a burger, you go to a pub for a meal or and it's just not the same as it was. So you've got that on top of, you know, the fact that hardly anybody's got any money to spend on entertainment and that sort of thing. And why do that when they've got Netflix as well? And that's what takes your money away. So it's I do think, though, that after lockdown, people are going to go a bit crazy and <laughs> well, and want to go to the theatre and that sort of thing. Well, that's one of my main concerns, you know what I mean, with what we're formatting with with free space and what we want to do and the services we want to offer. What we found during lockdown was a lot of creatives, you know, and people have said it in multiple of the episodes we've had, you know, I don't know what I would do if I don't do comedy because I don't know how to do anything else. You know, I don't, I don't know. You don't fall into that bracket because you've got specializations and whatnot, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, well, that's one of the great things that came out of free space is that, you know, I, I do have that, but I, I have a career, you know what I mean? I, I work, I work in mental health. And so at the end of the day, my survival is not dependent on that. And so what I want to do with that is, is create something that's going to support artists, support the industry and, and, take out some of that that confusion and that frustration Mm. and help this this industry I mean every industry is struggling but this is the one that I've dedicated you know that reaches me the most and so how do we how do we do that and how do we take this industry that's been you know decimated by this I mean we found ways to do it but the live industry has been decimated by this pandemic and how do we come through that and band together I guess is where I'm coming from in that and if we can you know yeah I mean it's really helping venues I think because without the venues I mean that helps all of the arts as well that helps the dancers that helps the theatre people that helps the musicians uh it's it's literally it's the venues the venues have got to be able to turn a profit and they've got to be able to bring people through the doors and advertise to them and say it's safe here now because the big worry is that people aren't going to want to you know get too close ever again so it's a bit i do think that the reason comedy boomed in the 80s in the uk was it was a direct import from america pretty much the format comedy stores a direct import and then it was just so very cheap i mean london at the time was a cheap place to live and you could you know and it was the cheapest form of entertainment you could put on and so lots of people did you know and at the moment it's one of the most expensive because you know not in terms of monetary costs but in terms of we physically can't do it because of the restrictions it's one of the most dangerous because people are laughing there's that you know ejection of air and (laughs) 
it's yeah exactly and it's all about getting close together and chummy in order to make it good and to make it memorable and to make it lovely and it's a lot of people from all over the country traveling to one place which is what comedians do so you can you know i i do i am very pessimistic about it recovering in the next sort of four or five years simply because the venues won't be there and without the venues you can't bring the people and without the people you can't have comedy um and i think there's a different generation who doesn't have the same thing of going out and having a drink and sitting down and relaxing watching stuff it's there is i think i think i think that it's almost as if we've become accustomed to um you know i I don't want to say accustomed to convenience but like when lockdown first hit my thinking was oh my god what am i going to do i mean i go i i'm not a performer but but I go I go to the shows and I relied on on venues and in person networking right that was absolutely crucial is walking into a venue if you call a venue on the phone you're not going to get a response from anyone you send someone a blind message you're not but if you show up at that venue for six months every night and you're at every show for six months you're now a person you're a valued customer yeah you're yes, taken seriously yes. mm. yeah they they care they care that you're there every night mm. and that that I just lost my train of thought there was a giant thump and I lost my entire train of thought um it is it is (laughs) um there's there's almost this passivity I think to going out because it is that extra effort it is that extra time it is that extra money and and the world has geared itself to convenience you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't find the same engagement in a Netflix special, but my friends who aren't super into comedy the way I am are like, well, what's, what's the difference? Why, yeah. why am I going to go pay $50 for a good ticket if I can watch it, you know, online? Yeah. It's very easy to justify isolating yourself in a box and not eating anything or consuming anything. And, you know, um, <laughs> and it is, uh, it, it really is. And it, it it's, it's that thing of going, you know, how much are people going to have changed from this? Because it might not be a long time for us adults, but for a kid who's like, oh, say, God. 13, 14. And that's the sort of time, maybe, you know, maybe a bit later than that, that you are used to, you know, going out with your mates and running away from your parents and stuff. And that they haven't had that. And I don't think there's a sort of very, like, let's keep it safe mentality that I think might really sort of ruin a generation in that yeah, sense. But They've all got to- a shared memory of, and I don't think it's like, oh, let's go out and celebrate and touch each other because I don't think they like that. <laughs> they've learned not to like that. They've learned yeah, not because to, they've that's become dangerous. a di- yeah because they've become adjusted to a different type of conditioning, right? Like exactly. our conditioning is we go out Friday nights. We you know we do our thing. We go engage in the community. That's so much of my age range that was still part of that. But if I look at my siblings who are five six years younger than me, they don't mm-hmm. they don't they have no interest. They're, they're, they're just so low. I, I do like gigs of schools and stuff. So I go into schools and I sort of go at them and they go, oh. um, <laughs> it's basically, they are quite terrified of me, but there really is this pressure on these children. I am very big. Um, but they're, they're like <laughs> literally these kids, like they're none of them muck about, 
you know, because the like the ones who are the schools I go to, the schools where they've got kids who are doing their GCSEs and then doing their A levels and then they'll go to a best university they can possibly think, and it costs a lot of money, so they're definitely not going to fail. They're not going to fail. They're not going to fail. And all of this is just like embedded into them, so they're just learning how to pass exams from the age of twelve. And there's no creative spot. They're not even sure what creativity means unless Miss gives them a tick for it. You know, mm-hmm. so that there's none of that. There's none of the thing that makes good stuff. None of the risk taking or that I don't actually care what you think of me. I don't mind letting my parents down. Anger. There's no anger in them. It's just all fear. And it's really quite, it's why when I see groups of kids sort of like hanging around smoking fags on their bikes or going, yeah, what? You know, looking very scary and very sort of, you know, and all sorts of colours of kids as well. And they all hang out together. And it's very scary on the corners and, you know, smoking their cigarettes at the age of 13. It's terrible children. I think, oh, thank God. You know, thank God they're still being human. (laughs) You know, they're they're, they're kids with actual fight in them, even if they're, you know, seen as terrible wastrums. But the kids that I performed in schools, yeah. (laughs) but the the kids I perform to in schools are just terrified of failing and it's because they're they're basically like their parents reflections of their parents and that's why the parents just go well look at what a good parent I am because my kid got all of these a-level results I think that's something you know that I'm I'm very grateful for I I said recently in a conversation that my parents my parents are very boring Okay, they're very, they're very nine to five. Again, you're saying this and they listen to this podcast. I know, I know, I know. And she's going to call and be like, why do you call me boring? And I'm like, because you're boring. And, and I mean that in the best way possible, right? For the record, I don't think either of your parents are boring. I think she means sort of like happy and content. Yeah, like, well, and, but they had this attitude of, you know, I already know what I like, right? My parents, my parents were in their mid forties when I was born, right? And and I was adopted, and they were a bit older than the rest of the the, the parents. And they had this attitude of, you know, you're you're an only child. You don't have siblings. We'll put you in anything you want to do. We'll we'll give you any activity, any toy you want, any any show you want to be exposed to. But I'm not going to find that for you. Go figure it out. Go figure it out, mm-hmm. right? But they also pushed this sense of, of like excellence, right? Like you have to be educated. You need to be able to think. You need to be able to reason. I don't care if you get an A in school, but I need you to be able to think through this process, right? I need you to be able to comprehend. And that's something that I don't see with, with my younger siblings. That's something that I don't see with with my nieces and nephews it's it's all this i must get this grade to get this paper i don't have a degree and i run my own company you know what i mean i don't i i graduated college with a two three gpa and a good sat score but i was able to reason and to think and and so much of what i see in schooling and kids today is memorize and regurgitate tell us that you can tell us what we want to hear and then we'll give you the stamp yeah and that's it's, it's jumping hoops they need to jump the hoops to prove that they know the things and it's it's terribly depressing i mean the thing is i've got a first um, but um i've never used it never used it you got a, a first in geography mm, i know exactly where i am <laughs> well i won't say what i got in sociology just because you know i just like saying that i'm a scientist but you know yeah exactly well i'm also a scientist as well i'm a BS you are scientist. you're a land scientist 
I know. But um, I did my I did my um, dissertation in stand up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And gendered space, gendered space, and stand up comedy and structuralism. Mm. It was absolute absolute wank, but it meant I could go up to the Edinburgh Festival and pretend it was for university. <laughs> Which is really good, yeah. But that was that's. But I used I I I was one of these kids who's I was good at school and I could get the grades and so I spent the entire time working out what way I could get them, which wasn't the way I was supposed to do. So I was always being naughty and I was trying not to get caught for it. And I would do weird art projects even though I didn't do art. I'd break into the art room and draw stuff and you know. Well, you're a phenomenal artist. I've seen your artwork. Thank you. I'm all no. right. I'm not phenomenal. I'm tr- I'm getting better. I'm getting better. No, That's the thing. Listen, as someone who is actually qualified to teach the Cambridge okay. IGCSE art and design exam, like I'm as I, good as I, a fifteen-year-old, what you're saying? No, shut up. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> <Nah. laughs> whatever. No, um, basically, whatever. I I used to be a teacher. I don't know if you if I said that to you when I saw you no. in 2015. But I was a teacher for five and a half years at a private school in Cairo. Uh, and wow. in my third year, I got privileged to be selected to teach grades seven, eight, art. And then after that course at the British Council, I was qualified to prepare students for the IGCSE. So I was also now teaching nine and 10 and 11, like special art classes because the, the school wasn't so much focused on art. And this is really interesting listening to what everything that you've both been saying. And listeners are probably thinking, where did Safe go? He was listening, <laughs> <laughs> biding his time um, with a great observation, which was that I even saw as an art teacher, I don't know if you've ever seen the film with Richard Dreyfus, Mr. Holland's Opus. It's this great film from the 90s and I highly recommend you to see it. And Jules, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend you to see it as well. And it's one of those bittersweet, powerful, feel-good factor. But it's basically about this guy called uh, Mr. Holland, music teacher. And he gets a job teaching at a high school in America. From the, and he's there teaching in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, even in the 80s. And because it was like released in the 90s, it was like sort of covering the fact that he was there at the time of you know rock and roll and he even used that in the classroom so sort of like and like there was this headmaster that didn't like the way or teach our head of department which was played by william h macy Mm -hmm. i might add so it's this really it's a really powerful film and as an art teacher myself i saw what he saw which was there was this shift over the last 50 or 60 years away from the arts, away from music, away from creativity, and just focusing like, you know, our school, the one I was at, they would do weekly testings in English and mathematics, a science exam every three weeks, mm. a computer studies exam every four, three weeks, an Arabic exam every two weeks, uh, an Arabic social studies exam every week. You know, so, and these kids are literally just like, they would be like half of the Amazon forest is stacked of revision sheets in the photocopier room. Like the photocopy room has this smell of a landfill. 
because it's just so much, you can just hear the Amazon forest going, my brethren and sisters are made into revision sheets. And like, literally just like, you know, they memorize, memorize, memorize. They never actually, and I would, you know, when I had that moment to be an art teacher, I noticed three things. First was, I was a fucking awesome art teacher because I totally, I might not be one of the greatest artists myself, but I recognize talent. You know, I, you know, my mom was a phenomenal artist herself, even though she was very hard on herself when she saw my artistic talent. And believe me, that like that picture you drew of that bomber flying over into the clouds of the moon. Oh, yeah. My God, I have even I've got a, like a digital tablet and I've tried to draw night sky. And the only time I got close to the moon that you did was with the, I blacked out the certain section of a page and I used Tipex to create the luminosity of the moon. So yeah. it was like a little trick I did. But that's a digital drawing. So it's a lot easier, not limited by, you know, it's it's lit perfectly constantly. That's the beauty of digital drawing. It's not like it's on hung on a wall and you have to put it in the right place in order it to work. Again, yeah. don't be hard on yourself. <laughs> not being hard on me. I'm just saying if I had to do it in Tipex, I'd struggle. No, you wouldn't. You'd be surprised. It's actually quite fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but but like thank you. Thing- thank you. Yeah. So the first thing I noticed was that the arts were being shuffled off to the side. Secondly, the art department was nothing more than basically today on Pimp My School, we got the art department. And guess what? It's the Christmas holidays. So we're going to put up Christmas decorations. It's Valentine's Day. We're going to put up Valentine's decorations. We got the guys from West Coast Motors. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to do some upholstery with these pictures and the corridors. But like, literally, it was like, we were just glorified, pimp the school up to look a certain way all throughout the year. And it, there is a sort of element where you can see that as a reflection. Um, so- But yeah, art is seen as decoration and not as actually a subject in and of itself. And not exactly, but the really saddest thing is like, again, with the whole, like, I remember when I was a kid going to Hyde Park I remember my older brother getting those model airplanes. He was like seven years older than me. So obviously he really got to enjoy the the eighties because he was born in the sixties. So, you know, like those model airplanes that you assembled and you put like a, like those Duracell batteries and it had a propeller, like just literally the, the adventure and the, and like doing all this stuff outdoors. And then you look at this generation Somebody was once in the staff room talking about how a child was trying to enlarge a photograph in a magazine. So it's like, yeah. I've seen that. It's it's worrying toddlers as well. Where's where's this not working? Why would you have paper? But yeah, (laughs) it's it's very cool what we can do with technology now, but it is very limiting at the same time in ways that you don't expect. It's quite sad. Like you want to be able to t- touching, smelling, tasting, all these things you can't do on a tablet. 
but you can layer really nice and animate your pictures and do all sorts of fun things. So it's quite good for that too. And it does mean that, you know, if I wanted to do that picture that you saw, I would have had to go out and get a lot of charcoal. I'd have to go out and get a lot of maybe acrylic, ideally oil paint and do it. And it would cost me an absolute bomb. Whereas doing it on a tablet, same price as, you know, playing a computer game, you know, that's the... <laughs> That's the ultimate cost. I do paint, actually paint and actually draw as well, but it is um, rarer now. I'll, if I've got a creativity impulse, I'll just draw it on the tablet because that's also easier to, you know, show it to people as well. But if you're going to do actual painting, what's your preferred medium? Honestly, acrylic, just simply because yeah. I am impatient and I want it dry. Have you ever tried um, oil pastels? I haven't tried oil pastels, no. I, I find pastels very, I like to be more precise. Well, um, yeah, I would suggest yeah. making a mix of two mediums. Uh, try coloring pencils with oil, oil pastels pastel. for the larger areas, because it's really fun to do the blurring of the two or three colors. You can get that Perfect. oil painting experience when you go with the yeah. oil pastel option. I'll show you some of my, I've got some old notebooks here. So I like to do, I do a lot of ink. That's what I, my main main thing I like. So, and I will do quite boring science-y no, things like awesome. and brains. And so this is, this. these are old, that's somebody sleeping on the sofa. These are old are um, notebooks. Uh, I prefer oil. I can well, tell I this is going to be a fun. I can tell this is going to be a fun part of the podcast. Where oh, I know wow. it's going to be a lovely listen, isn't it? Listen well, no, this part, no, this will be the part which will be listeners. There will be a video coming soon on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's weird what you do, but I, I honestly, I really like simple black lines a lot. So I can relate. That's actually I, I that's a set. So that's a show that I've written wow. that way. Oh. And that way I got bored. And so I did Godzilla fighting King Kong. Oh, wow. That is amazing. <laughs> so comedy, art, you know, on the that same thing. That is fucking amazing. But you see, oh I've, I've, I've been more spines. So if you can you see that. You have a fascination um, with backbones, don't you? I know. I, I really do. I like bones. It's partly why I like dinosaurs so much. Is um, I, like, I like the structure of them. I like learning about them and everything else. But yeah, most of this is just comedy notes. What's that? That's oh, just, wow, what's that? That's somebody talking to somebody in bed looking worried. Look, oh, oh, scariness. That, that looks like a Martha. Exactly. I know the meaning scary. of life. Scary. Um, I see know. dead people. Exactly. <laughs> this is weird. But mo most of this is literally just comedy notes with a bit of, you know, yeah, that's cheery. That doesn't mean a good mood. Smashing a rabbit. You know, what, what, you know. <laughs> smashing a rabbit. Why not? Why not? To be um, fair, you could be smashing actual rabbits. That is true. That would be worse. That so, would be uh, worse. So much worse. <laughs> much worse. A little bit. I'd be way more concerned for your mental health then. I, I don't know if you know uh, Jojo Georgiou. She's been on a roller coaster with memes on her account, oh, yes. Izzy. And uh, there was this one that uh, 
I I literally I had to like you know when you can download a picture off a posting of Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And it, this simply just reads my name like the name and whatever is being blacked out, but it just says my neighbor told me coyotes keep eating his outdoor cats. So I asked how many cats he has, and he said he just goes to the shelter and gets a new cat afterwards. So I said, it sounds like he's just feeding shelter cats to coyotes. <laughs> and then his daughter started crying. It yeah. makes me chuckle. It just makes me chuckle because it's like, because we'll just, we'll, we'll come to a wrapping up now. Because like, obviously this, that part that listeners will be like, great. Again, with the visuals that we won't know, but don't worry. Coyotes. <laughs> I will be uploading the video of this before the episode as a sort of advertisement so people will know what we're talking about and they'll be like, wow, this is what really is good this? art. I'm this glad. I... Bigger. One second. Oh, that's oh, wait. amazing. Wait, tell us about this. Please. Oh, that that that's my Alan Rickman obsession coming to the force. So that's him as Snape with this his one. Amazing. Out. Yeah. Notice the detail that goes into his face is right at the top, but the main thing that that draws the eye is his crotch. So you can really <laughs> tell it's not exactly. Miss <laughs> Lawrence, I will give you exactly. I should good, give you good. thirty points for Hufflepuff. For I believe you Hufflepuff? would be Hufflepuff. You want to be oh, Gryffindor? You'd rather be. Of course you would. Mm, good, good, good voice. Well done. That's lovely. Uh, he, he's, he's, he, Alan Rickman does. Particularly have a voice impressed how you drew my crotch. <laughs> well, I was very It's not often a student draws the teacher's crotches. They always draw. I think it is. In his class, it's a lot more often than you think. Harry Potter was ruined with not Alan Rickman playing walks. it. It should have been Tim Roth. Should have been Tim Roth. Tim Roth would have made him greasy, inky fingers, much more like the Snape of the books and the right age as well. Whereas Rickman just made him sexy and there's no use in having a sexy Snape. He's meant to be evil and horrible. And he wasn't, he was just gorgeous. It was like, that's no good. <laughs> a beautiful monologue that oh, leaves I me, love... that left me almost speechless until Jules reeled me in. Izzy. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have all your deets, like, you know, your bits. website, for your bits and pieces, you know, to your TED Talk on the description and everything. Mm. Have you got anything that you'd like our listeners to really, like, if they're this, what should they go for and so on? Like, okay. this is your moment. If you're into your dinosaurs, I really recommend Terrible Lizards. And if you're not into your dinosaurs, why aren't you? Come on, you're a grown up now. It's time to be a child again dinosaurs terriblelizards.co.uk um if you go to um izzy.com you can find links to the british museum member cast seti sopo is my silly comedy podcast about where me and simon find the opposite of things that don't have an actual opposite like what's the opposite of a motorway mm, taramasalata who knew um so it's things like that uh i do uh i i do um a show called the deadless deadlist as well though that's um um been on hiatus because it relies on live audiences and that hasn't happened for a while but um if you um go to my site and just check out the unstoppable letty peg uh which is my book for kids i have a new book coming out which is yet untitled um in september so look out for that but if you like anson's going to the moon that is a scene from the book it's set in the second world war uh just down in maidenhead so um it's all about flying planes so anyway um but the unstoppable letty peg is out right now with bloomsbury please do if you know any short people please buy it i, I need the money 
um <laughs> and it's good people have said it's good it's had like really nice ratings on like goodreads and stuff which i have no control over so that's really nice and it's had some you know and if you're into, <laughs> into a bit of historic feminism some, you know. and you want to know you want to know you want to know how mad the suffragettes were they were crazy so it's it's good for that reason as well if you want a bit of history but there we go so yeah do that but it's isdi.com for everything Izzy, I have to say, in all the years of me seeing comedy and then doing comedy, I can quite honestly say in the voice of Morgan Freeman <laughs> that there's never been a comedian quite like Izzy. Well, that's all you can ask for, isn't it? Izzy Lawrence came much. to Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> what would your crime have been if you were in Shawshank? probably um i'm not sure what larceny is but that it's a good one what is larceny <laughs> jules you're american what's larceny what i don't have the answer <laughs> good none of us know what larceny is it's that it's terrible <laughs> it's so a it wonderful word Can't it's a good it. word isn't it i, I would have pictured it... you as like you know like bonnie and clyde i would have totally pictured you with a tommy gun on the side well, of a car, robbing banks. I, 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 maybe. Oh, this oh, internet but... slowed down for me there. What did the you say? Property. That larceny is the theft of personal property. There we go. I, I, I nicked somebody's iPhone. Or, I mean, really what I'd have been done for is breaking a police officer's wrists like the suffragettes would have done. That would be it. It'd be avoiding arrest or something like that. Be a great story. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, there you go, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Izzy the criminal Lawrence. Izzy Lawrence. There we go. The criminal Izzy Lawrence. No longer now. Go to Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Uh, Izzy Lawrence, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. Uh, no worries. It was really good. And, and I uh, will... hope. Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just saying it's been really fun and thanks for having me. And um, I was yeah. just going to say, hope to have you. Yeah, no, and hope to have you yeah. again because this show is pretty much going to be going on right. every week. Cool. It's well, like, it's, I'm, it's I'm like something. Come back at some point. Yeah. I will definitely be bringing you on again. Definitely that, that, that you Boom. got. And I'm sure our listeners will want to, you know, especially, you know, to, to listen to the woman behind King Kong and Godzilla with comedy exactly. that is like you know and uh, alan rickman's groin area with so. a sexy crotch <laughs> I like that, yes. very All sexy right, crotch i'm gonna go run away and i'll speak to you guys later but thank you lovely to meet you as well and nice you to see you well. again yeah and i will see you on the internet yes Bye. ladies and gentlemen that was izzy lawrence a fine comedian a fine podcast artist writer Brilliant intellectual jujitsu I think what color belt she'll say it's it dark, just dark, the one about below brown dark blue totally blown away by how many different essence of comedy styles there are it's she's like a renaissance comedian that's like, like of all the arts observational satirical uh <laughs> you know artistic she's a renaissance creative She's a Renaissance creative comedian genius, and I was very privileged to have her as a guest on the show with no name.
peace be upon you, namaste, and all that jazz.